What does it take to become an elite 40K player? How do the top competitors overcome bad dice? The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War Unbroken. Insight into the game plans of the top players on the planet with your hosts, Blake Law and the Art of War Coaches. Hello and welcome to Art of War Unbroken. Champions may lose, but their spirits remain unbroken. I'm your host, Blake Law. This is episode 84 of the podcast. It's 84. I can't believe it. We're still here. Thanks for listening, everybody. They say we learn the most from our losses, and that is exactly what this show aims to do. We are going to interview an elite player who has lost one to two games at a major event, and we're going to break down the mistakes they may or may not have made. We're going to talk about them, how they plan to move forward from those mistakes. How often have you blamed a game on bad dice? We all do it. Matt Morsali does it daily. Now, where we're going is we're heading to Vegas. We're going to the Las Vegas Open. You will probably... See us here for about three episodes, I imagine, because it is a big event. There's a lot to unpack. There's a lot of great players who had one loss at that event. So just prepare yourself for some LVO action. Today, we are going to be talking about Tau, and we're going to be talking about Tau going into Chaos Demons. And the crazy thing is, both of these people are on this episode today. And they may or may not have the same first name. Now, this is part one. So in this part, we'll be analyzing the game. We'll be talking about common mistakes, secondaries, target priority, and all of the above. In part two, which is available to subscribers at the Art of War Patreon, the Art of War Broken Patreon, if that, if you really must go there. But in that, we are going to be talking about how their list plays into your list, my list, all the list above. So we'll be talking about their list adjustments, what they plan to do in the new Arcs of Omen, and their strategies. And don't forget the elite player mindset. My co-host today is one of many Matts who stepped up to the LVO challenge. And he, I believe, emerged victorious as the number one Matt at LVO, which is pretty impressive considering the number of Matts that were present. Um, I, of course, am talking about the legendary, the very Australian Matt Morsali. Ashante, friends. Uh, I am very proud to be I think the number one Matt at the LVO, that, that'd be right. There were no other Matts in the top four. You know, it's a, it's an honor. It's prestige. It's what I go to the LVO every year for, just to be the uh, the number one Matt. I'm very sorry, other Matt, uh, that uh, that you couldn't quite fit me. Um, but yeah, L- LVO was great. I had a great time there. Played two uh, two other Matts, including, uh, sorry, the Matt here today, so three other Matts total. Just uh, knocked the, the Matt Mirror match out of the ballpark, my man. I want to know. I want to. We're gonna really unpack that later, but I want to know about the Matt Mirror match. Like all of them, I need to know like how you got to the heads of the other Matts. Did you psych them out? Were you like last year? I was number one Matt in the ITC, and they were like, "Oh no." I I did actually tell one of them he had a shit name, um, and then uh, he's like, "What's your name?" And I said Matt, and the guy kind of looked at me with a a really weird look on his face. It was pretty funny. Yeah. I uh, so, I was I was tired, but thought my humor was on point for. Uh, for round three or round four or whatever it might have been. That's an excellent psych out tactic, though. You know, like you really get into the head of the other mats. But and before we go into it, I do want to know, and I'm going to look up this stat. I want to know the combined mats record of LVO. Like, what was the total mat? Who was the best name? I think there should be like including X. Like, there has to be a certain number of names in the in the pool for it to count. But I want to know the most successful by percentage name at LVO. That's a stat that I think nobody else has ever asked for. I don't think anyone wants, but uh, I think people you know, want it. If if you want to go and break down 950 players by first name, my dude, uh, go right ahead. 
I'm going to do it. And like X, X is like five or something. So like you have to have five present players with that name for the count. I think Matt's going to be the winner for sure. I, I think there's no other way around it. Excellent. There we go. On today's episode of uh, Stats Nobody Asked For. Yeah. Oh, I should. I, I would be the king of that show. The Stats Nobody Asked For. I'll just unpack all kinds of crap. But our guest today, I have been trying to get. He's like my white well, my Moby Dick, if you will, of guests. Because I've tried to get this guy on probably three times. And every time, somehow, it falls apart. But he's here today. I'm very excited to have him on. He has lost a lot of one one loss events, big events actually this year. And, uh, he just refuses to come on. So we finally got him. I'm of course talking about Matt Estrada. How you doing, man? Doing good. Thanks for having me guys. Uh, unfortunately not the best Matt at the event, but, uh, I think number two, Matt, so we will take it. Yeah. You're number two, Matt, man. I'm, I'm going to be looking closer at these stats. I'll, I'll send you a breakdown. It'll be a spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah. We're going to see graphs and charts and it's going to be real helpful and, and a good use of time. Yeah. A great. Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad you agree with me on that. Um, but you guys were at LVO. I didn't go this year, but standard, the event itself is player place terrain. So how did it go this year? Were there any big changes you noticed to the terrain layout or anything like that? Yeah. So LVO I've been now, I think three times and had some, had some Vietnam air flashbacks of some of those buildings, but the new buildings, the, the sisters looking terrain was excellent. I thought for player placed. Um, I'm, I'm torn between player place being the best of a bad situation and, and it just, maybe just is the best way to do it. Not sure yet, but the, uh, the terrain was fine. I thought, um, I mean, it, it might just be impossible to have good terrain at a thousand person event. I'm not sure, but was that one did this one in particular have the, uh, set center ruin on any of the tables, some of them. So the orc table has a set center ruin. I think, um, that old, uh, I don't even know if it's old now, but it's a, those big L one of them has like a big L shaped one in the middle. The one that we played on had a big old eighth edition magic box that we slid, uh, down the line. So I would say maybe 50% of the tables have a, have a big building in the middle that you got to shift. But, uh, I mean, and that's a good mix. I, I know that, um, that you just had John DeFrank on a couple of weeks ago and he, uh, he was talking about at glass city. They do, uh, a clear a clear box in the middle on every table. So I think maybe LBO might might want to look into that because some of the tables without the big box in the middle, it can get a little wacky. Dude, I totally agree. I think if you want if if you want to get a full breakdown on that, go listen to the Frank episode, like you said. But I, I think that that's just such a better way to do player place. It takes a lot of uh, a lot of that. Haha, I'm a better terrain placer a moment out of it for you. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason. I mean, Harpster's obviously a great player, but when Blood Angels win that roll off on that. uh on that player place terrain, and you just, your opponent just has to groan and go, Oh, well, I guess you're launching from wherever you feel like very comfortably. So right. that's yeah. Player place might be, might not be perfect, but I don't know if uh, GW is, and I don't know if WTC is. So who knows? It's kind of fun though. You know, it's kind of fun to have the mix. I know we always talk about uh, on this show in particular, we always talk about the terrain, but I think it's kind of fun to be like, Oh man, it's player place grown, grown, grown. And then you're like, well, how do I play that? That's kind of fun. What, what am I going to do different with my list? It's kind of, it kind of makes the game a little more engaging. Yeah. I mean, we tested it out. I know that Matt was telling me earlier that he has some cardboard cutouts down there, just testing out different configurations and tables. And, uh, we, we tried to do the same. We had, we got one of the FLG orc tables and yeah, it's, it's an interesting problem to solve. And after running back, Kansas City GW, Chicago GW, I was kind of ready for a change of pace uh, yeah. than 12 by 12 ruins. For sure. Um, who's your who's your uh, sparring partner these days? 
I've been rolling uh, with our our buddies in the Midwest there in Indiana. So I've been playing playing a lot with Dan Sansone, his brother Tyler. Uh, we have a couple locals that are that are super great practice partners. Uh, shout out to to Kurt, Levi, all the guys there. Um, but my talk a talk a ton with uh, Aaron Towler up in Chicago. He's really my uh, my vocal sparring partner as we kind of hash out lists and, and break down the games we play and everything. It's a good crew out there. Yeah, you got a pretty strong team out there, man. The Sansone brothers are both very good. I know I saw them at they were I believe they were at uh, Glass City. Yeah, yeah, t- yeah. So Dan's hitting the circuit pretty hard. Uh, Tyler, Tyler's got a couple kids these days, so he's uh, he joins us whenever he can. But it was good to see him at Glass City first first event he's been at in a while, and it was good to see him out there and hang out and you know do the normal tournament stuff. I'm curious, uh, Matt Morsali, This was your first trip to Vegas. What did you think of Vegas? No, that's my second man. I went in 2020. Um, oh, this was okay. this was my first trip without my partner, so uh, it was a little bit more fun. Uh, I say more fun <laughs> in that I I consumed more substances and uh, went drinking quite a bit more than I did when my my partner joined me in 2020. Um, it, was, it was good fun. It's um, there's only so much Vegas you can stomach, and unfortunately, I got delayed coming back out. I had to stay an extra night in Vegas, and I kind of wasn't really wasn't really feeling it for the extra night after I'd been there for, you know, for almost a week. Um, but it's good fun, man. The, uh, it, it's amazing going to an event of this scale. You know, we don't have anything like that down here. You know, the closest we get to that 230 players, I think, um, when you walk into a hall, it's got, you know, a thousand forty K players and 350 odd AOS players in one place. It's, um, it's pretty cool. Like even things like WTC don't really, you know, come close to that just in terms of like sheer size, you know, for the uh, the convention itself, but uh, I, had, I had a great time, man. I had some some really good games. I got to meet some really cool people. You know, the the whole way the event shook out sort of is what it is, and that's you know that that's a little bit unfortunate. But uh, but the event was great fun. I had, I had an awesome time. Yeah, I think it's a little intimidating walking into that hall for the first time. You know, I feel like if you're friends with people on Facebook who are going for the first time, you always know it's their first time because they're always posting that picture of them standing there, like with their arms out, and someone took a photo of them showing all like 500 tables or whatever. Like uh, you can definitely tell I was, I was home. I was home this time. So I was able to see a lot more of them and I thought it was kind of funny. It's like the, Oh, I'm here at this landmark photo, you know, or whatever. Yeah, um, It's like, it's like the Vegas sign, right? When you walk through the, yeah. when you take a photo, with the, you know, what is it? Like 800, what's well, not 800, like 700 tables. It's like well, the same as going to get a photo with the Vegas sign. It's uh yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty great. Um, let's go ahead and talk about your list here, Matt, uh, more solid or not more solid. Matt Estrada. <laughs> tell us about your list first. There's too many mats. Sure. So, uh, yeah, we've got, uh, we ran Tau Sept and this was, this was a big, a big debate for a while. I, I've been bouncing between Tau Sept and Farsight Sept for a while. And the end of the day, uh, Farsight just wasn't quite getting me to where I wanted. So we end up, we ended up going with Tau Sept. Uh, it's a pretty, pretty standard as far, as far as Tau goes. You of course have the two Sun Shark bombers. May they rest in peace. Shadow Sun, um, Long Strike. The Cold Star Commander that shoots a thousand times and rerolls everything, and then the Crisis Bomb. Mine, mine was rocking. Plasma Cyclic Burst. Um, the normal fixings. Seven drones in that squad. Then I ran a Riptide to hang out with uh, Long Strike uh, and a Hammerhead as well. A unit of Crude Hounds. Unit of Crude Hounds. And my my tech piece against uh, Demons was the Crude Shaper with the uh, No Deep Strike within twelve Relic. So and then and then of course a little baby unit of crisis bodyguards to go with it. So nothing nothing too out of the box. Um, I want I I love to be as more of a special snowflake, but 
at the end of the day, this list was, uh, I thought was going to be the most, uh, the most efficient into most of the targets and, uh, clearly performed, uh, performed up to standard. I thought it was kind of cool that um, a lot of the Tau lists you saw, because there was a lot of Tau players who made like the, the top, top 25% at least. And uh, they were they were like kind of the same, but a little bit different. I thought that was kind of cool. Like there was a little bit of flavor in all the lists. Um, and remind me, when we talk about your list and Arcs of Omen in part two, I actually want to circle back to the Sun Shark because I have some questions <laughs> about that. Yeah, absolutely. More than happy to dive into yeah. it. I've been, been thinking a lot about Arcs now. I really... It was tough this LVO. I'm sure that that a lot of players experienced this with arcs being out for at that point, leaked for probably a whole a whole week and then out for two. So so really three weeks in, a month into a quote unquote dead meta. It was kind of a it's kind of tough to stay focused on on old news. But we uh, we actually didn't crack open the arcs omen book until we got back from LVO. So been been scrambling to catch up with everybody who's been knee deep in it already. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I. I even recording this podcast is kind of hard. Like we're in the arcs meta full throttle now, and we're recording the episode, what, like a month and a half after its release or however long it's been. And it's, it's kind of wild that we're still talking about it, but it's still relevant because this is a big event. So uh, more so, why don't you run us through your demon list? Oh, okay. Let's have, let's have a look. I, I don't, I don't know too much about this one, but I'm going to try and make it work. Um, so we've got the, uh, We've got the unkillable Lord of Change, in quote unquote, with the um, the impossible robe, uh, the minus one to wound, and a bunch of smite powers. We've got the face cap bloodthirster with the demon weapon, the three damage ignore hit and wound modifiers relic. Uh, we've got Scarbrand. We have a change caster with some buff powers. Twenty bloodletters, twenty demonettes, three nerglings, five five four flamers, uh, and that is it. Very little compact package with um, with three monsters running around and a whole heap of flamers and, and lesser demons to go and trade and fight with things. So I was very simple. The, list. I was <laughs> I was out of the meta for a little bit because I kind of took a little break here for the last month or two. Um, why are we seeing Fate Weaver and like the Big Bird uh, make a return all of a sudden? Yeah, so uh, less so Fate Weaver. We can Nick and I could get on a podcast and argue about Fate Weaver versus the Lord of Change for hours, and we actually have. We had a, a conversation on the Vanilla Art of War podcast about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, realistically, a lot of it is to do with LVO terrain. Um, you know, given that there are going to be objectives in the open, that's just the nature of how this terrain pack works. You know, you, you are going to get counter-deployed on the center line. People are going to put crates or forests and things like that across the center. You know, you're not going to be able to hide all of your objectives. It's really important to have, you know, something in your army that can stand on an objective for a whole turn and won't just get shot off the board. Like you can stick five flamers on an objective, but the thing is, like, sure, three ups are great, but they're T4 models with three wounds. Like, eventually, you know, Bolters are going to punch through. Eventually, they're going to get charged and they're going to die. The Lord of Change kind of doesn't die. Now, it did die against Matt, very unfortunately. Um, but it's really important to have a tool like that that can just stand on an objective and exist and be there for a turn. Um, and the fact that you can teleport it around for two CP and get, like, you know, really reliable smites off. Um, I don't believe we had any sort of, like, game-winning smites and, you know, bolts and gateways in this game. But there were plenty of other games where the Lord of Change could just, like, deploy all the way at the back of the board, not really get shot, not really take any damage, teleport somewhere, and then, you know, splash mortal wounds and do a heap of damage and also not die. It's it's, it's kind of just a good little package. You know, it does a, does a lot of things that, you know, the army kind of wants to do. I think Big Bird meta might be the best meta, so I, I like that. I like that he's back. But uh, why don't y'all tell us what mission did y'all play? So y'all actually played in the shadow rounds. So you were both six 0 at this point, and you were playing to get in that top eight slot. So 
tell us what what you, what your thoughts were going in uh, Estrada, and what mission did y'all play? So going in at that point, I was really just happy to be there. Um, it had been a I, I will be the first to admit it was a very very lucky ride all the way through. I went first in my first six games. Oh. And yeah, it was, uh, and when you're playing Tao and you're, uh, and you're going first, things are normally working out pretty well. So there's, there's no doubt in my mind that a lot of luck helped me get there. And then I just had great dice all, all event, uh, really like, I don't, I think the hammerheads maybe only missed like one turn out of, out of the entire <laughs> event. So I was just stoked to be there. I was hoping to keep that streak up. Um, but man, that seventh game of 40 K and, and like, a in a two day period is a doozy. And I had, a couple of my buddies had made this shot around years before and we're kind of like saying this is the worst spot to lose. Don't do it now. So I was obviously hoping to pull through, but going into that game, it was just like, all right, we got one more game. Let's see what we can do. You know, and, and I feel very fortunate getting paired into, into other Matt here. It was a really, really great time playing and meeting, meeting him and having, uh, having a really great game, but we played corners. So death and zeal, which I believe is 32, um, which is uh, pretty similar to Convergence. Uh, I think Death and Zeal is sticky objectives, but I don't have any obsec besides a couple dumb crew, so not really my concern. We played on the table. Unfortunately, I think we were hoping for, to both of us, I think we're hoping for a little different terrain. We got the old, old, old 8th edition Magic Boxes and, and L's, so that the one that... Um, had the one that has like they're all two stories. One of them has a hole in the middle, and then a couple rinky-dink crates and and forests. So, not the terrain that I don't think either of us were hoping for. And then, especially with an objective in the center, that box is huge. And so to slide it down one of the sides is like creates this massive no-go zone. Um, but that was that was the hand we were dealt. And uh, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. I got first terrain drop and just slid the box down the line. It really didn't matter because corners is pretty, pretty symmetrical. And then we, we set up and, and got going. So that was, uh, that was the setup for the climactic game seven. What, uh, what secondaries did both of y'all take? So I, I took uh Tau stranglehold decisive action every single game. And there was no reason to stop it there. Um, I took aerospace just cause corners is really tough to get banners going. Um, in theory, my crew pregame move, I can get up there and place a banner, and I have characters that can do it as well. But uh, I knew that any misstep, any any character or crew left in the open, all of a sudden they get flamed, they get chicken jumped and smite. So I stuck with aerospace to try to try to get at least a nine on it. I would I would have felt pretty good about a nine on aerospace. And then because he had Scarbrand, Bloodthirster, Lord of Change, I took Bring It Down, uh, going for a twelve on it. The monsters are hard to kill, but if I can't get through, I'm going to lose anyway. So I figured bring it down was a good concession there. Um, looking back, maybe grind would have been would have been decent as well, but bring it down is what I went with. Is there anything in that moment like, with the terrain or secondary choice? Did you feel like you made a mistake in that in those spots? Yeah, so my definitely the weakest part of my game is player place terrain and just like just those like those little half inches that get you. So like placing my first ruin. On my home objective, put it should have put a little more thought into threat ranges. Should have measured the height of the terrain because the terrain's over five inches tall. So I can fit my crisis suit unit up on the top and not get charged by any big scary things. So that should I should have placed that a little more aggressively and been able to hop around to different buildings. 
But because these L's are so uh, are so L-y, they're hard to cut. <laughs> they're hard to cut angles on. So I really should have been angling mine more, using that big building, trying to migrate to that big building as soon as possible. But demons, uh, demons scare me very badly. Uh, with uh, especially with that Scarbrand tech, like if he touches me, I lose the game. So the whole thought of every terrain placement was don't get touched by Scarbrand. Don't get touched by Scarbrand. Please don't get touched by Scar- Scarbrand. Have Matt go on all his podcasts and tell everybody I beat this top player because <laughs> he got touched by Scarbrand. So that first building went went a little too far back. And then that my building up on my northern objective, kind of my no man's land objective, probably could have been placed with a little more grace, a little more, uh, a little closer to the center. My thought process was I don't want to give him a hidey hole, but I really needed one up there. So those two, those, and then of course we had a dumb crate that went somewhere unimportant, a forest that I really, uh, he could ignore modifiers on movement and charge for some warp storm dice. So I didn't really want to mess with the forest hurting me more because I don't have the crisis commander that ignores modifiers to hit. So the forest kind of went in a corner and that was kind of it. We had those, that building in the middle, mile on my home base and a, and a small building on the, uh, on the North objective. Go ahead and uh, walk me through the, um, the first turn and kind of what, how everything went down. Sure. So um, with, uh, with Matt setting up his terrain, very precise, um, at, at very much closer to the center than mine was. And uh, I think that was the only building that mattered for your terrain. I think you had a, what, a, a crate on a bottom objective. Can you think of anything else, Matt, that you, any terrain placement that mattered for you? No, I think we had that like long, that rectangular magic box building that isn't really a magic box because it has windows. <laughs> and I kind of set that up so I could deploy behind it and then walk onto the like top left objective for me or the, would be the bottom right for mm-hmm, you. Mm-hmm. Um, but like really the, the big thing was because of the way the center objective, uh, sorry, center ruin worked in this mission because it had to get slid up no matter where it got slid. I got to place my big L, uh, within six of the center for warp ritual, which is like the big, I think the big terrain placement part on, on my point. That was really the only thing I cared about, you know, significantly, I think, um, like the other ruin on the side, like it kind of gave me access to an objective that I could always sort of like stage up behind and get to, you've got planes, so you can always sort of fly over and shoot me if you really want to shoot whatever I put over there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like, all I really cared about was like, I need to get this big L within six of the center so I can cast Warp Ritual from out of line of sight and like kind of force you to, you know, to make things happen. Because if I just get to sit there and score 12 on a secondary, um, it makes the game much, much easier for me when like reality rebels is already a great secondary. Solid and, 15. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's like a 13, like 13 plus most games that you can get 15, but it is also, it's pretty easy with like the number of monsters I've got, right. It's easy mm-hmm. to kill a few things and stop me from getting, getting to 15, but like it's, it's a 13 plus. And at that point I feel like all I have to do is like, you know, win one turn of primary and I can win that game and the water change can stand on an objective or the bloodthirster can stand on an objective and not die. So that was kind of my plan um, when I was placing terrain and going into that. Yeah. And it, it would clearly work perfectly. Unfortunately on corners, I don't really think there's anything I could have done to block you from getting that middle hidey hole. I mean, maybe if I went right up to the center with my building, but then that gives you kind of a launch point, but yeah. So he, he, uh, he got first turn and deployed both big corn dudes in the warp. I believe I believe a bloodletter and a demonet. Maybe maybe just a bloodletter, but um. So and, and double flamer, of course. So he had a ton of stuff in reserve, and his nerglings blocked my jump to his building. If I were to redeploy them aggressively, go eighteen, and then go to 
go to shoot town. But uh, because of his um, strategic acumen, the Nurgling stopped that from happening. So uh, back up first turn uh, for the first time in the entire tournament. I went second and the one Aww. match that I, I know, I know. <laughs> The, the match that I really wanted to go first and, and get everything going. Cause uh, we've, I've played a, uh, we have a lot of locals that play Devens. So I, I've had a couple of test games and going second against the, the strong, like uh warp loaded warp locus uh, demon list is very, is super tough. You have one turn to kind of set up and I really wanted two turns to set up. So I, uh, I went second. Um, I think your first turn, you cast Warp Ritual and just kind of stood around. And yeah, I did literally nothing. You uh, you wanted first turn so badly, and I wasted it by casting one power. And I made the bird toughness. Yeah, of course, the bird the bird was toughness eight the entire game. Not that it mattered on turn two, but um, <laughs> it was yeah. So that that was uh, again wanted to go first, didn't get it. Not a big deal. I, I I just needed to spend my turn. I took probably way too long on that first turn. Just setting up everything because at, at the at any point in time, Scarbrand can just win the game for him. Like if, not falling back is like my only. That's my only tool against such reckless hate is just falling back. Scarbrand's <laughs> like no, not today. So I needed to uh, I needed just to measure everything, uh, and because the poor little crude hounds are early on my screen, they're only leadership four. So uh, that's a problem. So we had a screen out with crude hounds. I started detaching drones immediately just because I needed to do I would need a second wave of screens. And then the shaper held down my not castle. So shaper and the riptide kind of hung out untouchable in the upper quadrant away from my castle. Um, and I felt pretty good about that. Um, I put a unit. How'd you make them untouchable? You basically just uh, put the guy in the middle to give that 12 inch screen. And- 12 in- yeah, 12 inch screen. It's a hell of a thing. Like, he just kind of chills. The only and because his uh, you just do a little measuring. The flamers do move pretty far, but um, you know, as long as they can't cut, uh, clip the clip the character through terrain, he can't deep strike close enough to do any damage. I knew that he had his uh, he only has two psychers if I remember correctly. So mm-hmm. the Lord of Change could obviously punk him. So we made sure that he was behind a building. Uh, and then again, the twelve inch bubble really protects those angles. So the shaper just kind of chilled with the riptide behind him. And then I, I made probably the first mistake of the game by exposing, I think I needed to put something on that objective. And because I didn't place the building in the best way I could, I had to put a unit of crude hounds on there, um, which is fine. It's whatever. The problem is that the crude hounds were within three inches of the shaper. So I did take splash damage, which will be really relevant on, um, which will be super relevant here on turn three. So the, the Riptide hung out with the Shaper on the top quadrant, just kind of chilling. I think I maybe caught an angle and tried to shoot the bird to no avail. Um, tried to punk him a little bit with the Hammerheads, because they shoot 72 inches and who cares. And then the planes bombed the chicken and flew off. That was probably the second mistake. I think the plane should have stayed on the table, um, forced him to land something valuable back there to deal with them and start chipping away at the infantry, especially the demonettes, they're just very fast. Um, can get in the way of things, tie me up, be a problem, uh, go sacrifice themselves for an objective. So the planes should have stayed on the table, but they flew off and bombed the chicken. And I really wanted all that firepower for when he brought all of his toys on the board. So that was a thought process at the time. So planes fly off, riptide shaper holding down the fort. And then the crisis suit just chills on the upper level of the castle. So I gave him no good charge targets. He had... Some crude hounds in the bottom, and 
that's kind of it. Everything else was pretty well screened out with uh, Shaper. And then, of course, my Cold Star has the Tau Relic that you can't charge him where he moves 16 inches. So he was also able to kind of, as long as he wasn't the closest unit to Lord of Change, just by measuring around that no deep strike aura, then we were totally safe there. So I felt, I felt besides the planes and the crude hounds, turn one went fine. Again, the, the fourth game of the day is a, it's a tough one. And, and Demons put a lot of mental strain on, on, on me as a, as a soft cowboy. So yep. that's, that was a tough one, um, but no big deal. We had a great, a great turn one, I thought, overall. And we're ready, we're ready to see what big demons were coming on the table turn two. So kind of walk me through what, what happened after that. Like, where, where did the game go, and kind of where did it go sideways for you? Sure. So I knew I, I would have been super surprised if, if Matt brought any big demon down on turn two. I did not think that was his plan. Um, to just charge crude hounds, then die. And then even if he brought in Mr. Big bloodthirst or wound cap, I would have loved to have taken eight wounds off of him on the first turn he lands and just kind of chill. Um, so the only thing that came down from Matt was Union of flamers. They, they landed on an objective in the corner. Uh, my, I, I guess more his secondary objective and they landed, they killed the four crude hounds. No big deal. So that's two flamer units on the board. One still hiding in his castle one on his outpost objective. And then he yeeted the Lord of change right to the middle. Um, and, uh, got some spells off. I think he only killed like maybe a drone or two. Um, he did kill the crew. He did kill the crude hounds, which Inferno gateway did then splash to the shaper dealing two to him. So that'll be, that'll be pretty relevant later, but that was, it is what it is. So that, um, that was his uh, another uneventful turn from Matt, but he knows how to play the game. He's he's up to like six on Reality Rebels. He's up to seven on Warp Ritual, and I've I've been in Tau, Tau don't score till late, so I've been in these circumstances before where it's like, all right, well we'll uh, we'll keep grinding it out and try to score eighty points on turns three, four, five. <laughs> so we'll we'll, we'll we uh, he jumped the chicken to the middle. He had a unit of flamers come out and flamed away probably three three drones. Which again, I'm I'm happy to make that trade. Like as long as we're happy to trade drones for flame reactivations. So I go into the I go in on my turn on turn two, and I'm feeling like the chicken and the flamers have to die, and that's kind of all I'm worrying about. Um, his secondary unit of flamers were were far enough away that it wasn't very enticing to go after them. I also didn't really just have the number of activations to go after them. Uh, I could have brought down the baby crisis unit, the two man bodyguards. They are burst burst cyclic. They will shoot a lot. I love using that two CP strat to reroll failed hits. It's no drop zone clear from far sight, but just landing and being able to, to shoot, you know, 40 or so shots with full rerolls can help, but we kept them in the sky and this is where I, I, I the Lord of change died in like two shots. Um, mm. <laughs> a, a very, a very historically bad performance from the chicken. Riptide just goes pew and does like 14 damage to him. Oh wow! Um, yeah, I mean it was it was pretty nutty. Uh, Did he have all the damage reduction stuff on him? Oh yeah. yeah, he was he was he was looking pretty buffed. Um, should not have happened at all, but um, made made him make a tough choice between rerolling. Uh, Riptide save or an impossible robe because again the hammerheads were both looking to to clean them up and I think you made the the correct choice by either impossible robing or rerolling one of the hammer one of the Riptide shots just because at that point if the hammerhead if you were on like what four or five wounds 
So all the hammerheads had to do was wound you. I believe you failed the roll, the the reroll too. So the uh, the chicken was down to like two wounds, and I had everything <laughs> everything in the army to shoot at him except for the um, except for the riptide. So the chicken died uh, to long strike, and uh, that felt pretty good. And at that point, I was I was definitely feeling like, all right, well, we might just be able to <laughs> we might be able to steal this game from a, a very good opponent just off of dice. But the flamer unit he exposed, I, my crisis unit laid into it, and that's where he decided to roll a little better, kept some of the flamers alive. Um, but we needed, uh, which, which, which was fine. I was fine with them being alive because we had set up a charge with drones, commander, and crew. So the thought process was I needed to get to the middle um, to, to clear out those flamers, and it wasn't going to happen in the shooting because I did not think the chicken would die to two activations. So we had the cold star in the middle with the crew and a, and again, a detached unit of drones to eat the overwatch. And we set up a, a nice, nice, easy charges on them all. The shaper um, again, being on two wounds was definitely scary because the, the biggest concern was that he would just walk out and give up warp ritual for a turn just to get a, just to zap him. And now all of a sudden my deep strike protection's gone he can uh, he can run run rough shot over me, but I'm not sure if that was um, if the right play was not to just to throw him forward, but we we kind of kept him back. He hung out, and so the cold star had to go hold down the middle. So the thought process was cold star crew kill the flamers because the drones eat the Overwatch, and then he only has two activations of shooting, one of one from each flamer unit, and he can't target the cold star because of his crew protection. So one unit of flamers activates, kills the crew. The other unit of flamers activates and and unfortunately did kill the cold star on his turn three. So I needed the cold star so that he couldn't charge him. If anything else went to the middle, <laughs> Scarbrand gets in and we just we just lose the game. Uh, we can't kill Scarbrand. We can't fall back. We can't get Tau Stranglehold. It would have just been a disaster. So that was the plan that formulated. We ended up beating the flamers to death with, with Commander with the thermo puncher and rerolls. He's he's awesome. He does his job every time, and the crew. But unfortunately, that turn three is where where the wheels kind of fell off. Scarbrand landed. I believe he failed and uh, failed a charge, or or no, he he hit some drones because I had yeah, he, he he killed the crap out of two drones. <laughs> Almost made his points back. Um, so smacked around some drones. The blood thirster landed on my northmost objective which was definitely an issue just to let you land on that for free. But I was scared of the shape or getting picked <laughs> off. Um, but again, that's, it's not to keep making excuses. Seventh game. It's a, it's a tough one um, late at night. Uh, so we, we just misplayed the shaper a little bit there. And then of course, again, he flames, he, fl- he drops his flamers in, flames, the crew. And then that other unit of flamers that for some reason I just forgot existed, walked up and killed the cold star. And I didn't, I, I, again, I played demons enough. I looked at the score enough. He's max warp ritual. He's on nine or 10 for reality rebels. And I believe you also took bring it down. But at that point, you're getting to my good stuff now. Uh, so even with, and even if you, even if you zeroed out on bring it down, I was only going to get on four on aerospace. You put, you put, I, I drug the game out too long. I needed the cold star died. He's normally my emergency, uh, my emergency, you know, yeet, go get the, aerospace turn five so i was already penciling in a four for me on aerospace tau stranglehold we did manage to get 
uh, you know, it's not, not that hard to hold three with Tau, especially when all three are in the open. Uh, but bring it down. Killed Order Change, killed, killed Scarbrand. But that Bloodthirster, we just ran out of stuff. To, we just ran out of gas to kill the Bloodthirster. Because um, we had a... We, Scarbrand obviously had to die. Um, the Flamers had to die. The Demonettes in the middle had to die. We just ran... And I lost, unfortunately, again, lost the Cold Star. And he would have picked up you know, a unit almost by himself, but instead I had to re- I had to commit a bunch of resources over there. So I don't even know if I even shot, I didn't even shoot the bloodthirster. I just was going to give him the riptide to go tango with for a turn as I had bigger fish to fry. So that's how turn three shaped out. Um, again, on board, it looked like I was really far ahead, but the score was, uh, <laughs> the score was not going my way. And that's how, that's how demons I think kind of gets you sometimes is all of a sudden you look down and you're like, I'm done with my secondaries. Good, good luck figuring out yours. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. And I, I think we called it at the end of at the end of three, maybe the top of four. After we realized again that the store the score was unobtainably far away. Bring it down, max at a twelve. Aerospace capping at a four, and um, bring it down, capping at an eight to his fifteen, twelve, um, probably an eight or ten. So it was, we, I think we, I think we packed it up then. Is that is that yeah. is that the correct retelling of the events, Matt? I think you're pretty close. I think as soon as the um, the demonettes and the bloodletters got into that crisis suit unit and like kind of stopped you from moving and shooting and doing all of yeah. the things that you want to do, and like once the bloodthirster got into the middle, because the bloodthirster just walked away from his objective and ran into the middle, <laughs> and he's just about to crash. Like he just crashes into everything. He kills whatever he touches at that point, um, and it takes you two turns to kill him. Right? Like it takes you. Like, you don't have any of the three, combat it takes left. Three it takes me three. Yeah, yeah, correct. That's right. Because you take. And there was only so, two turns left in the game. <laughs> So. Yeah, well, well, when like when the like, when when the cold stars alive, you can kind of like there's a world where you can kill him in two turns. Um, but as soon as he's gone, like he just he just runs around, right? He just he, he runs the mark and he kills everything. And a, again, like it sounds, you know, it sounds a bit arrogant to say, but it's like there's just no point to keep playing at that point, you know, especially when you've been playing no, no, for no. twelve hours of that a time, and like you kind of have lost your your means of scoring. Um, yeah, it, it uh, that, that's, that's that's pretty accurate, man. I think that's um, a very good retelling of the events. Yeah, you know, that, that's where it kind of ended up. You know where what the part two is called now? I just I just I just figured it out. Uh, what's it's that like? Running amok with Matt. Oh, <laughs> yo, with Matt's very, plural. That feels, that feels very uh, feels very Australian. He's running them all. Yeah, I can't I can't do an Australian accent. I'm sorry. That's that, uh, that's British, my dude. British. Uh, is there I'll, I'll work on that. Yeah, there's not really. He he wants uh, to believe same, it. Same people, same people. Same people, same people, yeah, for sure. I will tell you this, that uh, as part of doing this show, I follow these events pretty tight. And so I was very happy to see Estrada do as well as he did. I was actually messaging him, I think, after every game. I was like, oh, you're 1-0, no, man. I was, <laughs> I was just like hype. But uh, I was happy to see you make uh, go 6-0 and go that shadow round. That's, uh, that's pretty awesome. And um, once we hit the top eight, I actually was in Florida uh, with my buddies at the beach. And so we did a March Madness like uh, <laughs> like pool, betting pool. And the loser had to buy all the other people drinks and the winner got double drinks. So um, I didn't lose, but I, I didn't win either. So I was, I was in the middle. I got drink spot and had to pay me anything. So it was great. But I, I lost because you lost, Matt, more oh. solid. Uh, you well, actually cost me. You cost me the pool because I had you playing uh, Jack in the. Uh, was it Jack or who? Who did yeah. you play? I, I I kind of lost to Sean. There's a there's a longer story there, mm. but oh, I, I remember that. Yeah, yeah I, I, I I kind of lost to Sean. On paper. Um, well, 
on on a tablet that doesn't work properly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think um, I, look just just before we finish up and we head into part two, I think uh, a couple of things that you've talked about here, Matt. I, I think are really like teachable. Um, you did a great job of the screening. Like you, you you played really really well with the screening. You really thought through your turns. A lot of people kind of think that armies like Tau and to like a lesser extent like Votan and Guard just kind of sit there and shoot, but you did a really excellent job of screening and like the detached drone plays were actually like very, very valuable as well. Um, I just think that's like one of the, you know, one of the biggest things you did that the other two tower players I played against didn't do was like detaching drones and using them to screen out, even though they're low leadership. The, the thing is, right. You can never really wrap on them. Like Scarbrand can't really wrap on two drones because it's always going to kill them. So if you yeah, put them that was, the that way was that you the scary did, part, yeah. Yeah, well, you, you put them far enough away from other stuff that I could never charge something, like kill the drones and wrap on something else. Um, one of the tower players, I like I played a tower player in round five where he screened with four crude hounds and Scarbrand and the Thurster charged the crude hounds, piled into a crisis suit unit, then said, lol, you can't fall back. It's a good game, um, yeah. That's a- and just and, and ends the game, right? But you did a really excellent job of that. And I, I know you were sort of saying you thought the Shaper might have been in the wrong spot, but I, I think the Shaper was in the right spot. I think... It made it harder for me to play the game. The only thing I think you could have done differently, I actually, on reflection, I think you could have let me have the 12 on turn two and saved resources. That's the only thing I can sort of think of now that might have been a better play. Because like you said, you score your points in the back end, right? So maybe not committing all that stuff when I've got the chicken and the flame is in the middle might have been a better play. It's hard to say, but that, that's kind right. of all I... You could be right. Yeah, that's kind of all I could really think of post. I know we, we chatted about it a bit post game, but you know, again, we we're chatting about it after 12 hours of 40 K. No, and so. I did not. I, I wanted to, to, to hold you hostage there for an impromptu coaching session, but you had a, uh, you had a top I'll, eight to get to. So sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll bill you for it. It's fine. All right. No, no worries. I'll send it in uh, in Australian dollars. Yeah. Uh, it's basically dollars. free, right? I yeah, think so. It's like four cents. But uh, no, actually, I think it'll be like a million dollars because I think Warhammer is really expensive over there. <laughs> it, it is. You don't want to know what a uh, <laughs> what a Space Marine costs you. I, I don't even know. All, all I know is the Lilith Hesperax model is seventy dollars. It's wild. <laughs> so the, the to go back to your point on turn two, if I had known that your chicken was just going to die like a little girl, I would not mm. have committed to the middle. Yeah. But the backup, but the backup plan was that commander's uh, command. The, the crew and the commander have had their way with order changes before. So if for whatever reason he's alive, I go in there and punch him. I feel like a superhero. But when he dies to two activations, now I just have all these three units just in the middle. At that point, I'm in too deep. And yeah, but but no, you I could have I could have chilled, given you the twelve, and then waited because that was the last turn you could have brought your deep strikes. Yeah, that might have yeah. worked. That might have been okay. Been like, all right, you have to bring him in now. Scarborough gets a drone. Yeah. It's luck. easy to say in hindsight, right? Like it's it's very easy to say that knowing how the game goes. I think it's only really on reflection that I think maybe that would have been a better play. Um, but again, it's it's also hard to concede a twelve when you're already a little bit behind on the scoreboard. You know, it's mm-hmm. it, it's it's mentally a difficult thing to just commit to and say, okay, I'm just going to give him even more points and hope that I can claw it back. But yeah, I, I think for the most part, like you did a really excellent job of screening, especially when the army has very few like dedicated screen pieces, especially when those things are leadership four, right? Um, I think you did a really good job with that. I appreciate it. And again, I'm, I feel super blessed to have played you in the last round. Um, there was uh, we kept on looking around at the other tables and it was like, yeah, this is, this is the table to be at. This is where, this is where all the, the chillness is happening. Uh, so thank you for the great game. Oh, thanks too, man. I, I really appreciate that. It was definitely the game I wanted after playing, three other games that day. I was, uh, 
exhausted, I managed to give myself a blood nose by punching myself in the face. That was very cool. Um, yeah, that, it that was happened. a wild time. Yeah, I'm still washing the blood out of my my outer wash shirt, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for coming on both mats. Um, prepare yourself for running amok with Matt, which is the new name for our part two. I think that one's going to stick. Um, and join us for the other shows. Let me go ahead and just give you a little rundown on those. We have The Art of War Vanilla with Nick Natavati and Paul Murphy. We have the very, 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 almost as Australian as Unbroken, Art of War Down Under with the late and great Adam Camilleri. We, of course, are the Art of War Unbroken, the pistachio of all the flavors. The one you didn't know you loved until you tried us. Thanks for listening. Join us for part two. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War and the Art of War Down Under podcast on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com. 